This episode is brought to you by AARP. 18 years from tonight, Grant Gill will become a comedy legend when he totally kills it at his improv class's graduation performance. Knees will be slapped. Hilarity will ensue. That's why he's already keeping himself in shape and razor sharp today with wellness tips and tools from AARP to help make sure his health lives as long as he does. Because the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash healthy living. Welcome to Podcast One. We hope you'll support our sponsors who bring you these podcasts absolutely free and with limited interruptions. And of course, we appreciate you listening to this show, which will get started in just a second. Since 1983, Eddie Trunk has been the voice for fans of rock, hard rock, and heavy metal. A best-selling author, host of TV's That Metal Show, and seven national radio shows, including Trunk Nation, daily on Sirius XM. Interesting. Eddie offers the world his newsmaking interviews, passionate analysis, honest commentary, and who knows what else. So welcome to the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Welcome everybody, Eddie Trunk here, and another edition of the Eddie Trunk Podcast is up and running, free as always via podcastone.com and iTunes. Hope you guys are well, and hope you all had a very, very, very good week as we get ready for another round of the Eddie Trunk Podcast. And a double dip for you this week, bringing you two great interviews I think you're going to enjoy. First up, Jonathan Kane who is the keyboardist and one of the primary songwriters of some of the biggest songs of all time, including Don't Stop Believin'. He, of course, of the band Journey. Jonathan Cain has written a really fascinating uh, autobiography that has recently been released by that title, Don't Stop Believin'. And he calls in to talk about the book and his time in Journey, which continues with that big tour coming up with Def Leppard, and also his time in Bad English and The Babies. I think you're going to really like the conversation with Jonathan Cain. I enjoyed it. That's up first. And then an interview with Jeff Tate, former lead singer of Queensryche. Jeff Tate talks about the 30th anniversary of the classic Queensryche album Operation Mindcrime, which was about a week ago, and gives us uh, some thoughts on looking back on that album 30 years ago, and also his plans to tour playing it in its entirety, which is currently happening and about to happen, depending upon where you are in the world. So... Jonathan Kane talking Journey, Bad English, The Babies, followed by Jeff Tate talking 30 years of Queensryche's Operation Mind Crime. That is what we have for you on this week's Eddie Trunk Podcast. As always, remember, follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Eddie Trunk. EddieTrunk.com is the website for all your uh, music news. You can email me through the site, more information, past playlists, 
Uh, although I haven't updated those in a while, to be honest with you. But there's music news updated daily, that's for sure. The blog, the trunk report, and a merch store. You can go there and you can get uh, all sorts of cool merch, including a brand new Trunk Nation t-shirt. It's all there for you on my site. And want to remind you, though, Twitter is the way to go if you're only going to do one of those things because that is where I keep you up to date up to the second. So I'm coming to you via my iPhone recording this open this week because I'm on the road, as has been the case very often. I am in Los Angeles at the time I'm recording this open, which is the Monday night before you hear it. I came out here to host the Ride for Ronnie event, which is for the Dio Cancer Fund, raising money for a great cause. It's always a great time and uh, a great honor to host the events for the Dio Cancer Fund, which I have the opportunity to do twice a year. There's a bowling event and then the ride for Ronnie, which is a motorcycle rally with a concert. And that's what happened this past Sunday in Encino. Steven Adler and his new band played. Steven, always in great spirits, looking great, sounding great, and excited to launch this new band that he's putting out with Constantine Maroulis as his singer. And I got to tell you, I know Steven's had some start stops with a number of different bands and projects over the years, but I really feel like this is one that could get some traction and be successful for him because he's got a great singer in Constantine and a guy who knows the business. And he has some good people around him. He's got a manager that's got some major connections now and a very reputable manager. So I feel like it's a, a very, you know, maybe the more the most credible thing. And also, I, I think that Stephen has a lot of goodwill headed his way. There's a lot of people that wished he would have had a larger role in the Guns N' Roses reunion, none more than Stephen himself. And I just think there's a lot of people rooting for him. He's been sober for over a year now, and I am one of those people that is certainly rooting for him. He's a great spirit. He's a great guy. He's a great rock fan. I genuinely really do like the guy, and I really hope that he can get some traction for whatever he does musically. So he played a few songs, and he sounded real good. And I am going to see him because he's performing at the Whiskey in L.A., a private show on Wednesday, which would have been yesterday if you're hearing this on post day, and then a public show, which is sold out on Thursday at the Whiskey. So I plan to catch one of those shows and also plan to see Chris Robinson's Black Crows Band, where they play all the Crows music. A couple of the shows I hope to hit while I'm here in Los Angeles. I was so bummed because I found out that Miles Kennedy, who is a good friend and I'm a huge fan, played just like blocks from my hotel. And I had no idea. And I missed that show. I had no idea he was in town. He had no idea I was in town. And hopefully I get to see Miles, who's out touring America right now with his solo project when he comes to New York, which is in a week or so, I believe. So anyway, so much going on. So many shows, as usual. It's hard to hit them all. But I had a great time so far here in L.A. And my time here in L.A., of course, has a few more days left in it at the time you're hearing this. But that is the update as it stands now. So Dio Cancer Fund, thanks to everybody who came out. Thanks to everybody who supported. Thanks to all the bands that played. Bisto Blanco also performed. Very cool band featuring Chuck Garrick, who plays in Alice Cooper. And also Calico Cooper, which is Alice Cooper's daughter. Going to be hosting a free show with them July 28th. 
at the IDL Ballroom in Tulsa. And if you're in that area, come down and check them out. Also just confirmed, I believe it's July 13th for Dokken at the IDL in Tulsa. All my appearances, more information on eddytrunk.com on all of my appearances. They're right there for you. Coming very soon to Cincinnati for a speaking show and uh, a lot of other stuff, including Rocklahoma coming up very soon now, Memorial Weekend. And that, that'll be followed by me sticking around in Tulsa for a bit to host Striper at the IDL Ballroom on May 30th. Again, everything on the homepage of eddytrunk.com as far as appearances. And be sure to follow, like I said, on Twitter, at Eddie Trunk, for up-to-the-second news, info, and updates. So, a little bit of an overview of what's going on. I'm uh, getting close to finishing up the first season of Trunk Fest, my new TV show coming to Access TV. Mark your calendars for July 1st for that show to premiere at 9.30, 8.30 Central on Access. And I can't wait for you guys to see the episodes when they start rolling out. we got two more to shoot. And it keeps changing as to where we're going to shoot those two. But needless to say, uh, I look forward to you guys seeing the show. And it will be uh, a lot of fun. I think you will enjoy it. It's not that metal show. I am asked constantly, daily, still about that metal show. And I can't thank you guys enough for doing so. I have no information on that front whatsoever. But I do encourage you to check out Trunk Fest, which is a very different show. But very cool, just the same, coming to access, like I said, on July 1st. Uh, What else? I think that covers it. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms this weekend. And um, we'll get to our interviews. How about we do that? Because we've got a lot of interview content for you on this week's Eddie Trunk Podcast. First, Jonathan Kane. Second, Jeff Tate. Oh, one last thing. Of course, remember, if you are shopping on Amazon, do so by starting at Amazon.com slash shop slash Eddie Trunk. All right, Jonathan Kane, Jeff Tate, all straight ahead on this week's Eddie Trunk Podcast. The Eddie Trunk Podcast. Guy problems. If you're a guy, you know all about it. Well, how about Hims? You should know all about that. A new wellness brand for men. What kind of problems? Well, 66% of men lose their hair by age 35. And here's the thing. You start to notice hair loss. It's too late really to do anything about it. It's easier to keep the hair you have than to replace the hair you've lost. So that's where 4Hims comes in. 4Hims.com. It's a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, sexual wellness, all for men. Thanks to science, baldness can be optional. Hims connects you with real doctors, folks. These are not quacks, real doctors, and they give you medical-grade solutions to treat hair loss. We're not talking about any sort of fake stuff, snake oil pills. Nope. These are prescriptions, solutions backed by science. There's no waiting room, no awkward doctor's visits. It's easy. You answer a few questions. The doctor can prescribe what you need, and the products are shipped directly to you. Order now because my listeners get a trial month of hymns for just five bucks today, right now, while supplies last. See website for full details. This would cost hundreds if you went to the doctor or pharmacy. Go to fourhymns.com slash trunk. That's F O R H I M S dot com slash T R U N K. Fourhymns.com slash trunk. 
This This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Hey, have you checked out the big podcast with Shaq lately? Of course, Shaq and the team talk basketball and sports, but it's not all about sports. Shaq talks movies, TV, music, what's happening in his life, and maybe even a little gossip. Some of his past guests include Chris Weber, Rob Gronkowski, and Rob Riggle. Make sure you check out the big podcast with Shaq every Monday exclusively on Apple Podcasts with the podcast app and podcastone.com. I should say the podcast one app and of course podcastone.com this is the eddie trunk podcast okay we got two interviews for you on this week's eddie trunk podcast a little bit later on jeff tate talking about the 30th anniversary of queensrike's operation mind crime but before we get to jeff we get started with jonathan kane of journey first time i've ever interviewed jonathan his book is really really good i did enjoy it and there's a lot of great stories in his book and you're going to hear about some of them we really just scratched the surface and we talk about the babies and we talk a little bit about bad english as well a few of the other bands he was in so without further ado on this week's eddie trunk podcast interview number one of two jonathan kane of journey starts us off welcome jonathan how are you hey freddie i'm doing great man thanks for having me oh man thank you so much for uh taking some time i i know we tried to get together and connect in new york uh last week and our schedules didn't work out but i appreciate you giving me a few minutes here today because i really really enjoyed your book and i'm trying to before we get into talking specifically about the book jonathan are you the first member of journey to release a memoir yes sir yes sir so have you thought about had you thought about doing it for a long time and and, yeah, and why was I, now the right time it, well you know i i ross my base our bass player ross valerie good friend you know and and bus buddy kind of you know encouraged me and i i would tell him stories about chicago and the old days and all the craziness you know and he um he said you gotta write a book you know and then I, uh, I, I I ran into a book called On Writing by Stephen King, and it's a little little thin paperback that, and he where he says you know, and I'm a fan of Stephen King's. I actually met Stephen uh, along the way, and and he, everybody's got a book in them, you know. And I thought, I, well, then Russ said it, and so I started, you know, and it was uh, an arduous process at best. I probably wrote that first chapter ten times, you know, and I still hadn't found my voice yet. Um, I had to learn a lot about uh, the memoir voice, you know. Uh, I had some great coaching along the way. <laughs> I spent a fortune on tutors and ed- editors, you know, to help me narrow it down. It was always my problem. I ramble too much, you know. <laughs> so I don't so you wrote this here. thing yourself. You did this yes, all sir. yourself. Yes, sir. Wow, that's impressive yeah. because, I, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people do or some don't know this, but most artists, when they do these things, it's they basically just do one big long interview and it's somebody else's voice. So it was important to you to make sure this was all coming from you in your voice. Yeah, I, I ran into some guy in a bar one night who was a ghostwriter, and he, he said that would never happen. He said, there's no way you're ever going to get this published. You need me. You know, I'm like, I don't even know you, and I will get it published, you know, but um a terrific company, uh, HarperCollins Zondervan. Um, they they've been so helpful. You know, we had meetings and and you know we worked hard on the outline. And I had all the I had a 550 page, you know, big 
thick old thing, and I had to I had to knock it down. So they helped me with the editing uh, immensely. You know, I I couldn't make decisions <laughs> as to what to leave out. You know, and then we got to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and it was almost a blessing that I didn't finish the book till after that happened. And standing on the stage, um, receiving that honor you know in brooklyn at the barclays center i all of a sudden saw crystal clear how the book was going to begin and it was going to be that night <laughs> yeah, yeah for the what can i give to the reader that's going to draw them into my story you know and and that's about the one of the biggest honors that journey's ever you know been given so i thought what journey fan wouldn't want to read about what, what that felt like you know and um you know this is really a book for encouragement and you know anybody that's got a dream any artists have been that's been told you know you're not good enough or forget a kid and you know um it's also a book for dads that you know are looking you know how am i going to help my kid you know and and i hope when fathers read this book that that they see that they matter you know in, in a child's direction in his life and um my father was a huge part so this is kind of a love story to my dad you know who gave me so much in my life and um sacrificed so much for me and always had this prophecy you know that music greatness you know so um he actually helped me with the the title don't stop believing it he actually told me that one night when i was thinking of coming back home to chicago you know i was in hollywood struggling and and he said john we've always had this vision together don't don't let go don't stop believing you stay stay there yeah, it's amazing, man. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, your father's role, you, you, your own kids. I mean, it's very, you, you, you know, it, it's not, you know what I, I love so much about it is that it's not exploitive in any way, but it is very raw and you're very honest, especially towards the back end of the book about your relationships and, and yeah. your marriages and your family and your yeah. kids and everything. It, it's not it's not done in, to be sensational or to try to uh, dish dirt, but it, you can tell it's really coming from the heart and that you really opened up about a lot of things. And from a musical standpoint, I mean, there's a lot in this book about the impact that Steve Perry had on 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 joining the band and you know well when you were you were of course joined the band while he was already there but your the impact Steve Perry had on you when you joined the band and the impact Steve Perry had on leaving the band I mean that's a big theme throughout the book and something that I'm sure a lot of fans want to read about well exactly I get asked all the time you know and you know seeing him was great and he was so uh you know, genuine and, and happy to be there and, and, you know, congratulatory to all Arnell, like shout out to our old manager, Herbie. And, you know, journey was a special thing in my life. You know, that and the other theme is, you know, God put me around greatness all the whole, all 30 years. I was, I had a great dad, you know, um, I had a, a, a pretty, pretty great teachers, um, you know, music teachers in school was always a challenge for me, you know, um, especially in Chicago at East Leiden, you know, it was so hard there. We had the greaser wars going on, you know, <laughs> and it was like, well, well let me, let me, jump, like yeah, outsiders, you know, <laughs> yeah, let me let me jump in because I want to go a little bit chronological in the time that we have because sure. you talk about sh- Chicago and something that really connected with me in the book. Now, I'm from New Jersey, not from Chicago, but there is something in your book that resonated with me big time of your early years. And that is 
that you grew up essentially in an Italian deli. And right. the reason above why... It, right above it. Yeah, right. right. Was, that was my... My dad's floor was, was his ceiling, right? <laughs> right. So the reason why that resonated so strongly with me is because my my mom's side of the family is 100% Italian. And when I was a kid, I would not walk home to the house. I would walk home to the Italian deli they owned, and I would do uh, my homework in the back, and I would sometimes sleep in the apartment above the deli. And when you tell these stories about being a kid, having run of the store, all the food, everything that went on, man, did that strike so close to home for me because I had that same experience. And that, that just sounded like a wonderful time. It, it was, you know, and uh, Louie and Katie, the owners of the store, kind of adopted us kids. They didn't have kids. So we had an extra set of aunt, extra aunt and uncle. You know, I didn't have a grand grandparents at that point, so they might as well have been my grandparents. Um, couldn't have been kinder, and you know, uh, we were blessed. You know, I, I always tell people I was a kid growing in a, up in a candy store. You know, just one of those literally unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, it, there was so much uh, harmony, and and we felt like you know we were in the best parish in the world. Everybody loved God. Everybody got along. Um, there was just you know kind of a great scene right there and then you know in 1958 uh 1958 december 1st my school burned down you know yeah and uh 92 children were perished in it and three nuns and and it shattered uh, a lot of us you know uh we had to grow up that day you know we had to grow up and and look evil in the eye and uh and somehow try to get beyond the tragedy you know uh, wasn't easy for any of us. I'll tell you that. But, yeah. Well, um, you discuss I, the, 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 I, I'm just, I'm just, I, I hate to jump in on you, but I know we don't have a lot. I don't have a ton of time with you and there's so much I want to hit you with. hit, yeah. you know, give the, give the audience a taste of about this book because the, yeah. the fire, your school burning, growing up in Chicago, that deli is a big thing. Musically, yeah, the emergence of, of music, going to LA, all the things that you, that you did learning, yeah, sure. uh, you learned accordion, accordion, piano, singing, all the stuff. And then a big moment for you was you get to LA and you saw the New York Dolls, right? That, well, yeah, you know that was Whiskey a Go Go, our first uh, concert, little concert that we saw, and you know we were like, "This is crazy!" You know what's going on? <laughs> of course, we. I told my brother it was a shtick. You know, I said this is called shtick. That's all it is. We don't have to wear a dress to make it, Tommy. <laughs> and then when you get the gig in the Babies, I found it really interesting because. You you first of all you 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 were a fan of Journey already. Then you you get the gig in the Babies, but then you find out when you join the Babies that they're already a million dollars in debt. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty it was shocking. You know, in the seventies, what you know how we you know what kind of money that is today? It's like probably three four times that. How did how did that happen? You know, and uh, I I felt I started feeling sorry for these guys. Like, how are they ever going to get out of this debt? You know, it's like. Like being in the army, you're never going to make anything, you know. Um, and and the record company was ruthless, you know, to, to get their money back, you know. And I don't know. I mean, we finally got a man. The manager was so, you know, the way he told me, I was like, oh, I get it. So we can only pay you $250 a week, John. Is that okay? I'm like, uh, I guess that's going to have to be it, you know. Uh, and yet, you know, John and I wrote these great songs and uh, made two great albums together. And uh, so at least I have my songs, you know. Uh, but being strangled by that debt was one of the reasons why you said John Waite left and the babies ultimately sure, broke yeah. up because he, he didn't yeah. feel like he, the band could ever get out from under. 
No, no, it was impossible. That that's just you know, biz, music biz one hundred and one. You know, this whole book is anybody that has dreams about being in music business. There is a lot of you know good wisdom in this book, uh, and just shows you how uh, what to watch for. You know. Um, <laughs> Yeah. And the babies and the babies were opening for Journey, and that's really how you got the gig. And you talk about you talk about the impact of seeing Steve Perry warm up when you were on tour with the babies opening for Journey. You, you talk about how the other guys and the babies would kind of do their own thing, but you every night would just marvel in watching Journey Soundcheck and Steve warm up. Talk a little bit about that and how that led to you being offered the gig in, in Journey. Yeah, it was funny. A lot of the guys would would bugger off to go do other stuff, and I I found myself attracted to their sound, and I I was studying them for some reason. I I would sit out in the audience, watch the audience, listen, see what kind of changes they were making. They were trying to make a a live album. They ended up calling it Captured, and they put a lot more rock in their set. They started out with this this big grand set that had all these segues and all this stuff, and and they trimmed it. To where it just was this beautiful rock and roll set, you know, just bam, 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 like a, like a machine gun, you know. And I, I just, I couldn't believe this guy's voice. I couldn't believe that guy's guitar. I couldn't believe the drums or the bass. I mean, it was all just so top notch, you know. I haven't heard anything this. They were a fusion band before the, Steve had joined, so they were like playing like Chick Corea stuff, you know. Um, and then I envisioned myself up there with them, you know. What would I play if? I was on stage with them, you know, how would I play that, you know? And, um, then I would be invited for dinner, you know, afterward the, the show, they had these ama- amazing catering, catered dinners at the hall, you know, table, chairs, the whole thing. And then sometimes at night we would go out and jam and I jam with Neil and sometimes, uh, weight would show up and, and Perry, Perry played drums usually. And we, and we played Motown and, you know, in soul music, you know, and John Singh lead and Perry and him would trade off and Neil and I would be jamming and, you know, we kick these guys off their instruments and, and <laughs> go jam in some club, you know, uh, we had so much energy. It was crazy being young back those days. But, um, so I knew something was up, you know, and Neil, um, had said something. I didn't know you could play like that. Cause you know, we get, we get into fusion a little bit and I'd play what I knew, you know, jazz wise. And he was like, I didn't know you'd do that. You know? <laughs> And where was where, where was Greg Raleigh when you were doing all this? <laughs> not there. He was not there. No, he was planning on retiring, you know, um, mm-hmm. and, and starting a family. And he had had he'd been on the road with Santana. I think the road, you know, it takes its toll eventually. And he he wanted a break, so he went and you know had his kids, and you know they they chose me ultimately. You know, they called me that next year and. I didn't even audition, right? Not even audition. No, they just called and said, no you got audition. the gig. Yeah. There's come up and help us make the album next year. You know, we're, we're going to start in January. Uh, we want you to be there. And I was like, I'll be there, you know, but I had to call the guys, you know, and the babies and say, I'm leaving. And, uh, ironically, John had, uh, had a bad injury where he, he had, uh, torn his ACL on, on a cable and, um, couldn't perform, you know, until he had the surgery and it was going to be probably a good eight months to a year, you know, before he'd be able to perform again. And when I called him, he still hadn't had a surgery. And, um, uh, he said, you got to go for it. I, I'm, you know, this man's kind of toast with the debt and 
you know, you, I decided to call everybody and tell them I was leaving, you know, and they weren't happy about it, but uh, it was too great of an opportunity to pass up. Yeah, it's it's and this is all chronicled in Jonathan Cain's book, who uh, we're talking to right now. Teddy Trunk, the show is Trunk Nation. Jonathan Cain is my guest. The book is called Don't Stop Believing. It's available now, and and Jonathan goes through all these stories in great detail. It, it's so it's so awesome. Um, this first escape. Well, for another another big thing. Talk about music business one hundred and one that I thought was really interesting is when you joined Journey, they made you an equal member. That's kind of unheard of for a major band. So that had to it, feel pretty good. It was amazing, you know, really amazing. And they they explained to me they wanted to change their sound that they had been there, done that, and they wanted to move on, you know, and they wanted um, my keyboards um, to help that help you know make that change. And so I realized that I could put my signature on a lot of this stuff. And they, Perry, it was a mutual admiration society. I, I guess they didn't realize that they, they admired what I was doing up there. But when I got there, it was like, no, we want you to play this. And, you know, your feel, whatever you feel and whatever you think it's going to be. And I brought synths into the band, got the organ on, along the sidelines and, and decided to make it a little more modern, you know. And, uh, of course, the synths were really getting good at that point. And we had Roland and the Jupiter eight and the profit five and, and they were sounding pretty good, you know, back in the day. So, uh, I wanted to utilize, we modernized the sound of journey, but also we expanded, you know, uh, Steve wanted to sing ballads. He had this thing about, I just want to sing a few great ballads. You know, I, I miss singing ballads and we seem to always write rock and, you know, can't we? And he had some great ballads on infinity, you know, that, uh, uh, that they put out. And, uh, I said, yeah, well, we can do that. You know, so we did. And I pulled out a song called Open Arms <laughs> that I had, well, as, I had, well, well, I had written, well, you know, years ago. And, and we finished it in a day and it, it became one of our biggest singles. Well, Keep On Running, you say, is the first thing you wrote with the band, which is one of my all time favorite Journey songs. And, and of course, the album we're talking about is Escape. And then Open Arms, you do say in the book that. Steve actually wanted that for a solo record, and Neil was no, not that was down. Faith, that was faithfully. Oh, faithfully. faithfully. But oh, open arms, Neil wasn't feeling so much, right? He, you know, it was a departure, you know, and I, I, you know, now, you know, you look at it, and he, he finally, you know, he, he got behind it, you know, and, and it took a lot for him to get behind it, but at least he signed on for it, you know, and, and you know, it was it was just such a departure. I understand why he felt the way he felt, you know. But Perry and I thought the song and the performance and him singing that song was just too good, you know, to just leave on the on the cutting room floor. We just thought, and the way it turned out was tremendous, you know. And the feel that everybody put on it just sounded like Journey had just made a new direction for itself, you know. And it was kind of like the beginning of adult contemporary rock, you know, soft rock if you want to call it soft rock, but. Foreigner, I, I, I ironically was doing the same thing with Waiting for a Girl Like You. So Mick Jones and I talked later uh, in life and laughed, you know, I said, we both had the same idea, you know, and who's crying now and Waiting for a Girl Like You were on the charts at the same time. So go figure. Yeah, and, and I'm sure that for Steve Perry, having you there in the band, although Neil might have taken a little while to warm up to the ballads, Steve with the, his voice, which, I mean, you you and Steve and, and the band writing these songs, and then you've got this guy's voice over a ballad with just opening up and just soaring. I mean, yeah. what a combination. It had to create you know, a great bond between you and Steve. 
It did. We, you know, and, and his voice in the arena was just magical. You know, um, it, it became arena anthem, you know, kind of thing. And I, you know, I, I remember seeing Neil Diamond as as a kid, thinking, you know, these ballads work good in these big places. You know, they sound better than the records actually, because the big, you know, giant sound that would come out, and there'd be so much space. You know, and open arms is when you play it in an arena, it just it just soars. You know. And his, especially with that tenor voice of his. So, you know, I remember playing it in Atlanta. It was the first time we played it. It went number one in the city of Atlanta, and they were demanding it. And we played it. The place came unglued. It was the first time. I'll never forget it. It was an amazing, amazing night. Yeah, well, Escape has so much great stuff on it. Stone in Love, one of my all-time favorites. Of course, Don't Stop Believing, which your book is is titled after. Uh, I got to put you on hold, Jonathan. Back with more with Jonathan Kane of Journey right after this on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Foreigner with the 21st Century Orchestra and Chorus, the new album featuring the classic hits as you've never heard them before, live and orchestral. The album was recorded at KKL Luzerne, Switzerland in May 2017 and is the very first Foreigner album with full orchestra and choir. Together with the 21st Century Orchestra and Orchestra and choir. The performance showcases all of Foreigner's biggest hits Cold as Ice, Say You Will, Double Vision, Urgent, Feels Like the First Time, Jukebox Hero, and more. These anthems have been reimagined through orchestral and choral arrangements and can now be enjoyed from a completely new perspective and with fantastic sound quality. Available on CD, DVD, CD, 180 gram vinyl, box set, and digitally. On April 27th. So that would mean it's available now. The live performance will also be broadcast in June on a PBS channel near you. Be sure to catch Foreigner on tour this summer, commencing June 15th through August 4th with White Snake and Jason Bonham's Led Zeppelin Evening. Foreigner, the new album with the 21st Century Orchestra and Chorus, exclusive CD and DVD available only at Walmart. This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. We're back with more with Jonathan Kane of Journey on this week's Eddie Trunk Podcast. I found it really fascinating, the story about Faithfully and the phone call from Prince. Tell that story if you can. Man, yeah. Um, I was in L.A. working with my ex-wife on her album with Keith Olsen um, at Goodnight L.A. Uh, and um, I got a call from an A&R guy at, at Columbia, and he said, you know, come over here to Santa Monica. I've got something for you to listen to. Um, you know, it's very important you come over today, you know. And so, all right, I was like, that's kind of weird. Um, so I, I drove over there, and he he played me this song, Princes, you know. And it was uh, it was Purple Rain. I had never heard Purple Rain. It was the first time I heard it. But he said, you hear this ending right here? Prince is concerned that he stole faithfully. And and he wants to talk to you about it. But I had to play this first for you. So I listened to it and I said, man, I I see what he's, you know, worried about because the chords are similar and the guitar and the, and the whoa-whoa's and all that. You know, it was similar ending. I said, well, this, they sound nothing like each other, really. Um, I think it's a hit song for Prince. 
I'm flat. You know, so let me get him on the phone. So they get him on the phone, and he, you know, he's like, "Are you sure? I'll change it if you want me to change it." I said, "No, sir. It's a killer song. You know, you have much much luck with it going forward. I, I'm just I'm just grateful you even thought about me because you know I'm the sole writer on that song, and that you considered it." And it just showed how classy, classy caring of a guy he was, you know, at the time. And, and it went on to be a huge hit. He, uh, he got me some killer tickets at San Francisco. And I remember he tossed me a tambourine that said Purple Rain on it. <laughs> it <was so laughs> you know what's funny cool. about – yeah, you know what, what resonated so much with me about that story in your book was that, of course, I've heard Faithfully a million times. Of course, I've heard Purple Rain a million times. And until you wrote about it and told that story in the book, I ne- I agree with you. I Now – I can't hear Purple Rain and not think of Faithfully because you've told the story. But prior yeah. to that, I never put the similarities together. But then right. when you hear it now, now that you've you've revealed this story, it totally makes sense. I mean, there are so many similarities that Prince would have, you know, borrowed some of the spirit of that song. Well, well, I mean, I, I think he was a huge fan of Neil's, you know. I know, yeah. he, I know he listened a lot to Neil. And, and his playing, you know, and I, uh, I have friends to confirm it that said that that Prince ab- absolutely loved Neil's playing, you know, and uh, looked to him as like a guitar giant, you know, and probably wanted to emulate a lot of his licks. I don't know, but uh, I'll I, I'll be uh, forever grateful for that phone call. It was pretty cool. It showed you what a classic guy he was, you know. Yeah, we, no doubt. We met the other. Guy. Yeah, without a doubt. The other thing that was interesting about that I did not know around 1982 was that Journey was actually the band that pioneered video screens. Now, we have video screens on every show now pretty much, and it's the norm. But back then it wasn't. And you guys not only were the first to introduce that, but you actually launched a business providing them for other artists. Did I get that right? That's right. That's right. Our manager, Herbie Herbert, uh, had a, a company called Nocturne formed, and we helped, uh, you know, fund it to buy the equipment to start things rolling. And, um, you know, the year we went off tour, um, we had a little office building in the in the Bay Area in downtown San Francisco. And I remember going in there, seeing, you know, all these people from U2 to Michael Jackson wanting that same technology, you know. And uh, it wasn't long before... There was lots of competition, you know, <laughs> but, you know, we we pioneered it. It was the first time it was ever done. It was at one of Bill Graham's shows, Stay on the Green, um, you know, which is basically Oakland Coliseum where the Oakland Athletics play. So we had two giant screens and they showed us coming into the, you know, they had us backstage kind of like, you know, coming to the arena and, you know, getting to jump on stage and we're waving at people and they went nuts. They loved it. <laughs> yeah, it's really it's really something I didn't know that you guys had started that. Now, as I said, it, it's such the norm. the the uh, The frontiers period. I also found it interesting. Football star Hall of Famer Joe Montana gave yeah. you some advice. Talk a little bit yeah. about that. Yeah, well, we had just come off this platinum, platinum, platinum album, you know, and um, uh, he had just won a Super Bowl, you know. And I was lucky enough to sit in a luncheon with him because, you know, they were big fans of Journey. And um, I became a huge 49ers fan 
my our manager had a box there and we you know invite all kinds of people on Sunday to go to the games and so Joe became kind of a you know an icon mentor to me you know watch this guy you know go from where he went you know I mean uh, just uh, you know, amazing what Bill Walsh did with that team, you know. And so I asked him. I said, Joe, how how do you um, how do you get prepared for for the season after winning that Super Bowl? And he goes, What Super Bowl? He said, You know, I don't even have that ring. I said, I put it away. I put it away in my closet. I don't even look at it. He said, I, I forget. I even did that. This is mm-hmm. a new season. I erased that. I went, all right, uh, maybe I should try the same. I think I could do the same thing. He said, you should do the same thing. So forget you ever made Escape. Forget it. This is, oh. the, this is the album that's going to make Journey. Mm. <laughs> so I went in with that mindset. I, I don't remember Escape. I, I just know that we have this song called Separate Ways, and it's pretty cool, and let's, let's add to it, you know? Yeah. Uh, you said that it's a, it, it, for you, on the Frontiers tour, that's when things started to become... Uh, issues with Steve that not only did it first start to show the wear on his voice and the 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 toll that the road took, but also there was uh, you know there was some some tension. His girlfriend traveling with him on tour. Uh, he oh. starts traveling separately from the band. Talk a little bit about how tough that was. Yeah, you know th- th- those rigorous road things, and, and we we t- took very little time off. We were. We did crazy long tours on buses and into the studio and then songwriting every day and rehearsing all these songs every day and just a lot of wear and tear and, you know, probably four years. We, we, we pretty much ran it ragged, you know, and coming out with Frontiers was great, but we hadn't hardly had a break, you know, and we just went straight on the road and I just think that the unraveling starts to happen. Um, the road takes its toll. We pay a price for it, you know. And um, it's not perfect science, you know, when we're all human and, and the the voice is just a piece of two folds of flesh, you know, and, and uh, his voice was just precious, you know, and uh, it was starting to show, you know, and I get I got concerned for sure. Steve leaving the band and what went on around that, you detail really for the first time, I think, anywhere that I've seen it from an insider's perspective, uh, somebody in the band talk about what really went on. And people well, can pick up. time to clear the air because there's a lot of blame and all this conjecture and we kicked him out and, you know, we were mean to him and we did all this and we were the bad guys and, and he had this and he had these problems. And you know what? This isn't the official journey book. This is my life in, you know, 37 years of journey, which is almost half my life. Uh, and I just thought, hey, you know what? Here it is. This is what I remember it going like, you know. And Which is that you tried everything to keep him in the band, but he just basically said, I'm done. I'm cooked. Yeah. I can't do this. Yeah. Right, right, Toast. Yeah, I, you know. And he chose life. You know, there was certain circumstances that were lining up, didn't look so good. You know, he... He wanted his life back. He was a devoted son. He loved his mother. His mother passed, you know. Um, it was devastating, you know. He he just wanted his life back. And and when, you know, your business intrudes on your private life and you're a private person, then that matters, you know. So choose life. I'd, I'd rather choose sanity than insanity any day, you know. And I think he just chose life. So I just want to live my life, you know. I have enough money. I can't keep doing this. That's all. And I got and, it. And I, what do you I, think? I, 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 but, but Jonathan, what do, what do you think it's about now? Do you think 
Do you think that if, I mean, you saw him at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, everybody talked about how unbelievable it would have been to see him just do one song. I know you guys would have right. loved that. I talked yeah. to Neil about it. I know Neil was in the dark. He said he would have loved to have done it. Yeah. What, what do you think goes on with Steve Perry now? I mean, there's a thought, a school of thought out there that if he was toast back 30 years ago, that he's probably just kind of painted himself into a corner and there's no shame in it with the way he sang that he probably couldn't do it now. What's your thoughts about the guy he is now and his reluctance to really sing at all? I don't know. I can't speak for Steve, you know. Um, He's just a a brother to me, and I I can't really answer that question because you'd have to ask him that one. Um, Yeah. I I hope that he is singing. I hope he is writing. I hope he, you know, I've got this, you know, I, I, I almost called him. I did a worship album uh, last year called What God Wants to Hear, and I you know, I got so close to trying to reach out to him, come sing with me to the Lord, you know, <laughs> sing a song to God with me, you know, uh, for me, whatever. And I, I maybe I, I, I should have, you know. Um, I just see him singing, always singing. He's just been the voice to me, you know. So I, I can't answer. I don't know. I, I, I certainly saw a really balanced, happy, grateful guy there. Who seemed like he was comfortable in his skin, um, grateful and and honored, and genuinely honored. You know that night, uh, he honored a lot of people and showed a lot of class, and he seems happy. So you'd have to ask him that one. I don't know. There's one thing in the book that I picked up on that I thought was really revealing on this subject, and I never and I this really resonated with me. There's a part in the book where you talk about at the end with Steve, and you and Neil are trying to keep him in the game and keep him singing and keep him in the band, and he doesn't want anything to do with it. And you say, or Neil says, "Hey, listen, we we just so you don't think there's rumors, then we're going to start looking for another singer." And he stresses, "Go ahead and do." what you have to do but just don't call it journey that was his one request and i thought about that because i'm like well of course we do know that first steve algieri came in and then of course for a brief time jeff scott soto and then uh, as you have it with arnell and of course it is all under the name journey do you is there a side of you that thinks that maybe he is holding a grudge all these years because you did call it journey and that would be the thing that would prevent him from ever doing anything with you again yeah, again, you know, you'd have to ask him that one. I I can't I can't speak for for his uh his heart on that. Um I just know that Neil and I wrote two thirds of these songs, you know, and there's they're 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 more than one guy, you know, really. Um the music became bigger than us, you know, those songs are bigger than one person in the band, you know. And there I mean Neil came to me and said, I you know, I miss my voice. My voice is the sound of Journey. So when we went out, we had Journey featuring Steve O'Jerry. You know what I mean? Uh, that was our stipulation. We had to say, so when people came to see the, the new form Journey in 1998, it was Journey featuring Steve O'Jerry every billboard. Yeah, for like two years or three years, I think we had to do that. So we honored that much. But it took a lot of class on Steve's part to uh, to step aside, work out a deal with the lawyers. He could have you know, try to stop us, but he didn't, you know, um, and, you know, we, you know, it was, it was, it was a drive something Neil wanted. Neil was a founding member, you know, there before Steve was even in the band, there was a journey, you know, right. so it was like, yeah, you know, it'd be different if you know, he was the, the sole songwriter, then it becomes police. Right. 
but he wasn't the sole songwriter, and Journey had already existed before he he came in. Certainly, he made it a you know a, an iconic band. Uh, his his voice and his songwriting and everything he contributed, so much of it, you know. But um, that's how you know you got to get logical with it, and you know. I guess if Neil hadn't come knocking on my door, I, I would have left it alone, you know. But uh, he had this desire to put the band back together, and so we did. I helped. Hey, John. Yeah. Hey, Jonathan. I I know we're we're supposed to wrap up now, but is there any chance you can give me ten more minutes or so, or do you have to run? My guy is you have to five more. Five more. Okay. Okay. So I'll, I'll make sure I get the rest in right now. Okay. So. Okay. Um. We we talked about what's going on there. Okay. So. You go. You you talk about how unbelievably difficult it was for Steve Algieri to come in, and the almost the the almost the hazing he took from the audience, and how I mean I don't think people can you can underestimate what big shoes those are for him to fill, yeah. and by yeah. all accounts did a great job, but you know oh, he yeah. had his run in there, but he really in a lot of ways he probably made it a little easier for Arnell eventually to come in because You're he was exactly able right. to sort of he took the first he, he took the first shots from everybody oh softened my. it up for a little bit to say yeah there is a future without Steve Perry. Yeah and it took a, it took his kind of personality easygoing um you know I don't think he you know he, he took it in stride he was so gracious and so humble and so breezy. I mean, he was just one of those great entertainers to watch on stage and had his own shtick and his own style and, you know, uh, became actually a great songwriter in the end. You know, he, he was kind of budding songwriter when, when, when he joined. And by the time he, he left the band, he was writing terrific songs, you know, um, all by himself it was pretty scary. Um, so I was proud of him, man. He did a great job. I'm, it's a shame his voice, you know, left him and, but it happens, you know, and we were we worked hard. We, again, we were out there, you know, playing. We did this one tour. We did three hours. We did the old journey, and then we did the new journey. And, boy, it was killer. Yeah. Playing three and hours. like spring. That's like a Springsteen set, you know. Yeah. Uh, but, Springsteen just but, getting you know, warmed up. <laughs> it, yeah, yeah, you know, you got to have – Journey's different than Springsteen. You know, you can shout a, a Springsteen song. Uh, with half a voice, but um, Journey can't get get away with it, you know. you you yeah. got to have that precision. It's almost like being in the Blue Angels, you know. Um, as a singer, you go, you know, when, when's, when's, uh, when's a stock car, when's a, a NASCAR, you know. <laughs> uh, singers that sing Journey music have to have to drive their voice like they're driving a NASCAR, you know. Yeah, and you know we we all know we all know the job Arnell has done and continues oh, to yeah. do, which is remarkable. Years, I mean. Huh? 12 years. Twelve years, amazing. But what a, what about that guy that sits in that little the kind of uh, short period of time that came in? And you you talk about him a little bit in the book, Jeff Scott Soto, who who yeah. I actually know quite well as a friend. What, yeah. what is your what is your recollection about uh, that that very brief period and the, the spot he found himself in? Well, you know he he stepped up for 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 Neil. You know he was Neil's friend, Soul Circus, and. Um, you know, we were going to either leave the Def Leppard tour or stay, you know. And Neil wanted to give it a shot, so so Jeff came in graciously and learned, you know, sang these songs and learned them. And, um, you know, I I was grateful for him helping us finish that tour, for sure. Um, but, you know, when it was all said and done and over with, I was like, well, he's certainly not going to be our future, you know. I didn't believe that, so, you know. Um, because it didn't have that sound, that, you know, 
I mean, the cover bands were sounding more like less than we were, you know. Right, right. And you know what's interesting about another very, very old dear friend of mine that plays a big part in this period of time with Steve Algieri is is a promoter by the name of Danny Zalesco, who I didn't know you were so close with. I know Danny for decades, a wonderful guy. Yeah, yeah, and like he a played a role in kind of believing that there could be a journey without Steve Perry. I mean, he was a partner in kind of launching that whole thing with Steve at the time, which was Steve Algieri, which I did yeah, not know it, about. Yeah, in the book, I lay that out pretty well. There's there, there was key guys, you know, that stepped up for us back in those days when we didn't when people didn't think it was going to happen, you know, promoters included, you know, and um, you know, Irving had one idea and. I knew what reality was, you know, we'd have to, we'd have to earn the fans, you know, respect again and go show them what, this is what it looks like. This is what it sounds like. What do you think? You know? And, um, Danny, um, helped us put that on the road, you know, and he helped, he got the money together and, you know, did literally believed when nobody did that there could be right. a, a journey without Steve Perry. Yeah. And we made little or no money that whole tour we we found ourselves um the next summer playing in the sheds again which was pretty much a miracle you know that we went on the road with foreigner and it was like oh my we're, we're back out here you know um and you know to meet uh john barrick um our manager uh was a blessing john spent around you know that we're on that same time you know and so danny um danny really believed when nobody else did and you know, being a good friend and and knowing that how hard that Neil and I had worked to get to that point, he was going to help us. You know, and I'll always forever be grateful to Danny Zalesko. Last thing, because I know you got to go. Bad English. You talk about that in the book. How it started. You, you of course, back with John Waite. Neil is in the band. The experience of the first record, then working with Ron Nevis in the wheels coming off, just not you know kind of imploding very quickly. Just give just in closing again, and there's so much more in Jonathan's book. Everybody, don't stop believing. But just in the time we have, we I've given you some of the the broad strokes, but it's way deeper. There's way more going on. But just for my fan, my fan base, which is such a big hard rock fan base, talk a little yeah. bit about Bad English and your recollections and experience and what you discuss about them in the book. Yeah, well, I, I, I honestly think uh, it was management and record company not not really believing 100% in, you know, what we were doing and, you know, trying to second. They, this was the first band I had to go record, uh, record 12 cover songs, you know, for this A&R guy, you know, at Epic. And, um, and then our management, you know, um, not standing up, you know, for what's going on and letting all the shenanigans go on. And, we, you know, I, I don't want to cut cover songs we had we had plenty of great songs and if, tell us what you want we'll write one for you you know um but don't make us do these cover songs you know and then when we finally got a great record out we had to make all these expensive videos you know like four hundred thousand dollars a piece no one ever saw a dime you know that's management pushing you and and then the, the decision to go on the road with white snake white snake was fading we were we were red hot what were we doing on the road with them losing money every night you know it was just poorly managed um uh you know i went from journey which was managed so beautifully by herbie to that you know and uh, you got to have a plan so it's business 101 music biz 101 what not to do 
you know. And, and <laughs> I, I don't mean to laugh, but I feel bad for John Waite because he, yeah, he's, no, in he's in the no, babies. He's in the babies a million dollars in the hole, and then he has a new band with you, and that goes, you know, is financial disaster. <laughs> financial disaster is right. Because my, my account looked at me and he said, it costs you about 35000 a year to be in the band. <laughs> no. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, and we had our songs. We wrote great music. I'm still proud of those albums. You know, I still love the way they came out, uh, especially the first one. Um, you know, and, and Neil just is probably some of the greatest playing that he's ever done. John's probably the the best singing I've ever heard him do. He's a rock and roll singer. I mean, that is a true rock and roll record. And, you know, so... In the end, and we, you know, we recorded a cover song when I see a smile, and you know, this pop ditty ends up being number one, and you know, and people get the wrong idea of who we are. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. we were like the Black Crows. That's the band it was. It was mm -hmm. uh, rough and tumble rock and roll band. You know, like Free. It should have been left alone. Leave that. Leave that chemistry alone, man. <clears throat> you know, mm -hmm. but was that greed or what? What, what is? Why do? Why are you pushing? You know, three guys that know what the heck they're doing, that, yeah. that are veterans, and, to, and is singing these cover tunes, man. What, what is that? You know, yeah. I hated it. Yeah. yeah, it was very, very distasteful. And in the end, John had to do what he had to do, you know. Right. So, yeah, but the whole thing went, you know, it, it's very delicate, man. A band has got to be, uh, pay attention to their business as much as their music, you know, and the, and the way the business is going down on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, watch your budget. What, how much money is this going to cost? How much, answer, ask the dumb questions, you know. And, mm -hmm. you know, this this is really a, a great roadmap for not what for, for not what not to do, you know, if you're, if you're in a band. So, I think the book is full of wisdom and advice, and I got from great people along the way. God surrounded me with greatness and finally put me in the midst of greatness, and, and we were fortunate to produce some greatness. You know, So I, will, I have to praise the Lord for all of it, and uh, it was time to tell the story. That's all. Well, you did, and the book is phenomenal, man. Don't stop believing. I can't thank you enough for the time. Look forward to seeing you on the road with Def Leppard, and best of luck. Don't stop believing yeah. is the book. Jonathan Kane, everybody. Thank you so much, man. I know you got to run. I'll let you go. Hope to see thank you soon. You, All right, thank you, you sir. Okay, blessed. take bye -bye. care. Thanks to Jonathan Kane of Journey for joining me on this week's Eddie Trunk Podcast. Check out his book, Don't Stop Believing," which is out there right now. All right, break time. And we'll come back with another interview for you. Double dip this week. Jeff Tate talking about the 30th anniversary of the landmark Queensryche album, Operation Mindcrime, right after this. The Eddie Trunk Podcast. Well, here's some car tips that you'll find useful and that you might not be aware of. Check this out. A coffee filter and a little bit of olive oil, that can clean your interior, removing excess weight from your car. That's going to improve your gas mileage. And this is really weird. You can place your key fob to your chin to increase its range. Well, here's another tip you might not know about. True Car also helps people get used cars. That's right. True Car isn't just for buying new cars. With their certified dealer network and nationwide inventory of nearly 1 million used cars, you'll enjoy real pricing on actual inventory and a simpler buying experience, whether you buy new or used. And with True Car, users can see what others paid so they know if they are getting a good deal before buying. 
and they're more likely to enjoy a faster buying experience by connecting with True Car Certified Dealers. So you know the deal. When you're ready to buy a new or used car, head to True Car and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features are not available in all states. The Eddie Trunk Podcast. More of the Eddie Trunk Podcast right now and another great interview coming your way. Jeff Tate of Queensryche, formerly of Queensryche. Jeff is uh, celebrating the Operation Mindcrime 30th anniversary by going out with a band called Operation Mindcrime, playing that album in its entirety. We talk about the landmark concept album from Queensryche and much more with Jeff Tate right now. How are you, Jeff? Hey, I'm good, Eddie. How are you? Very good, very good. Um, happy anniversary, I guess, is in order, right? <laughs> oh, you're talking about the uh, Operation Mindcrime 30-year anniversary, obviously. Yeah. To this day, 30 years to the day, uh, I'm told. So it doesn't feel like that long ago to me, does it to you? Uh, some mornings, yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, 30 years goes by uh, like a finger snap. You know, it's uh, it's uh, it's also quick, too quick, actually. But... Uh, I'm definitely enjoying um, celebrating the uh, 30th anniversary with uh, touring and playing, uh, you know, the Operation Microm album in its entirety. It's uh, it's really really fun to play that album, and uh, it goes over really well with the audience, and uh, people seem to really like it. Well, we want to talk about that, and we'll do that in a second. But I'm curious: do you ever? Do, I talk to a lot of artists, and most of them tell me they do not go back and ever listen to their old records. Do you ever, just for your own enjoyment, put on Operation Mindcrime and listen to it as a complete record? Um, I have, yeah. But mostly, like all my records, I listen to them from a reference standpoint, like uh, just to familiarize myself with what I did and how I did it, you know, that kind of thing. I'm, I'm also curious. Next, next record, you know, I'm usually concentrating on the next record, so that's kind of where my my focus lies, you know. Right. You know, I'm also curious because this is the that was the uh, my crime was the third album for Queensrÿche, and the band had certainly made some great strides up to that point in terms of getting a fan base. But what was the reaction like back then, thirty years ago, or a little longer, of course? to management record label within the band when you bring the idea of saying, Hey, our next record is going to be this elaborate concept record. Uh, what was there pushback? Was everybody on board? Did you have to sell it? What was tell, take us in that time of the pitching of, of doing mind crime. Yeah, it was a total sell <laughs> the whole time. The whole project was, uh, you know, trying to convince people, to get on board with it in whatever capacity they were, you know, slated to work with, with us on it. Uh, it started with me, you know, writing the, the story and, the, and some of the music for it ahead of time, then presenting it to the band and having to convince them that this was the, the next thing we should work on. And uh, so that finally completed, you know, once everybody was on board, then it became a little easier to, um, to push, you know, uh, other people like the record company and management and that kind of thing. Um, the record company was, when they first heard it, they hated it. <laughs> Just hated it. It was one of the first digital records ever made. Um, I'm, I'm going to oh, say wow. it's like maybe the, maybe the third or fourth uh, digital release. 
Um, and so people, you know, weren't used to hearing digital recordings yet, which took a while before people became, you know, um, you know, good with it because it's, it's a different listen, you know, it's very harsh and brittle. And back then, of course, you know, the converters that we use to convert analog to digital weren't as sophisticated as they are today. So everything really had an edge, but we thought at the time that that really was uh, the way to go, especially with what we were trying to achieve with the music on that album. We wanted it to be hard and edgy and, and um, in your face, you know, and it definitely got the attention of the record company because they, they wanted us to go back in and remaster it because they thought, you know, it's, Oh, it's way too harsh. You know, people won't be able to listen to this, <laughs> but they did. Yeah, they did. But then the, then the critics, you know, they didn't really care for it right off the bat. It was uh arty and too full of itself. And who, do, who does the band think they are? That kind of thing, you know, and maybe it was because, you know, the words were hard to read because they were so small. They were printed on the, album cover and they were like ultra small so people had a hard time realizing that this was a story album you know and had a, a story to it but in time you know it, it took off you know especially with the release of the um the first video uh, eyes of a stranger when that had mtv you know with the record sales just skyrocketed yeah and i think that sonically you're exactly right the subject matter and everything like that i thought that that sound served it well and still does to to my ears in terms of what it sounds like, do you, do you all these years later, 30 years later, sonically, do you, do you like, do you still like everything about the record or do you listen and as, as you go through this for reference and say, oh, I would have loved to have changed that or I would have loved to have done that or, or you, you feel it, it stands the test of time? Uh, well, I think anybody that, you know, makes a record always has things about it that they wish they could have done differently or, um, you know, wanted to fix, but of course ran out of time or, or money or, or for whatever reason. Uh, and those things kind of can dig at you, you know, over the years, or you can forget what it was that it bothered you about it in the first place and just kind of move on and hear it with fresh ears, you know, after a couple of years, which is the story with me. I, I had forgotten everything that uh, bugged me about it, you know, when we were just finished with it and now i love it you know i love listening to the record and uh each time i've listened to it you know i've i've pulled something away f from it and and uh you know uh been very pleased with uh with what it was we came up with at the, at the end and as far as writing it jeff as you mentioned you write this story you take it to the band at the time was there resistance from either the even the other four members of the band? I mean, the bulk of the material on the record was written by yourself and Chris DeGarmo, and uh, and and Michael Wilton has a couple tracks on here as well. But tell me about the the creative process because you've got this concept, you've got this story, and you've got to find collaborators within your band at that time who who see the vision and can write songs that make it work with you. So so how did the how did the synergy work at that time? Was it a bit of a push pull or did the material once it started coming and the songs actually started to form come quite easily? Well, um, I had sort of been pushing to, um, you know, um, go with a conceptual record for quite a while, at least a, a year or two into the band's early existence. And if you look at our first two records, they, they were very thematic, you know, theme oriented. And, and um, I had exposed um, 
uh, Chris DeGarmo to uh, albums that I grew up with, um, you know, prog rock, what we call prog rock now, um, bands like Genesis and Yes. And I take him to, to see Peter Gabriel and uh, really try to expose him to that side of rock, you know, a little bit more arty stuff. And because um, he was kind of a, a guy that, you know, grew up on Kiss, you know, which is its own kind of art altogether. Uh, but I, I wanted to kind of do a full story album. And, um, so when, when the story finally hit me and I brought it to Chris, he was the first one I brought it to. And, and he liked the idea of doing it from the beginning. Uh, he just wasn't quite certain where it could go or, you know, there was a lot of unanswered questions at that time, but once he got on board, it became easier to sell it to the other guys, but there definitely was some reticence from the other guys that, they couldn't uh, wrap their heads around, you know, what it was we were trying to do, which really, in a sense, it it, it wasn't that different than what we'd done previously. You know, um, it was just a little bit more connected, I think, uh, as far as uh, the lyrics and, and keeping the, the theme of the, the music in a similar vein, you know, where oftentimes, you know, when you make a record, you have standalone songs that you just kind of throw on the record and they don't all connect, you know, all the pieces of music don't connect, but this, this album had to connect. So there was a, a lot of effort put into, you know, making the, the music um, similar, you know, where it sounded like it went together. Right. Well, and that being said, though, you still were able to have, as you mentioned, Eyes of a Stranger, I Don't Believe in Love, songs that outside of the concept framework of the record still became very big songs, standalone singles and videos that, that work, because that's really one of the tricks sometimes of concept records. It works as one piece, but you try to pull a single song out or something to to, to sell uh, sell it that way as a, as a standalone track, and sometimes it always, doesn't always work so well. But this record, was- really, My Crime checked all the boxes. That was exactly what you just said was, was my point in arguing that the record company at the time who wanted to release uh, Sweet Sister Mary as the single, <laughs> which was a 10-minute song. And uh, we said, well, it, we applaud you for wanting to release a 10-minute song. And I said, oh, well, we'd have to edit it. <laughs> <laughs> well, why? <laughs> you know, and there's all these wonderful songs that, that fit your radio format criteria. Why don't you use those, you know? So that took a bit of persuading for them to see that. Talk a little bit about what's happening now in celebration for the 30th anniversary. The record's been played in its entirety before. You got you did the Mind Crime at the Moore DVD. I remember, of course, people shouldn't forget there was a sequel. There's an Operation Mind Crime 2 that was done as well. So tell me about what you're doing now, because I know that in the separation of you and Queensryche, this record was sacred to you. This record is uh, not only you're the only one that can play it in its entirety, but also that you've actually named your band after it. So obviously there's a great importance for Mind Crime. And now this being the 30th anniversary, tell everybody your plans on going out on the road with it and what you have in store. Well, I've been out on the road with it uh, since uh, January. Um, all all the dates uh, uh, have been incredible. And um, playing the entire album with a very enthusiastic band, and uh, my daughter joins me on stage to sing the part of Sister Mary. And it's uh, it's quite a, a cool presentation. I'm really, really pleased with it. And uh, the audiences seem to really love it. And um, it, this, you know, realistically, I don't know if I'll be 
able to sing this material when I'm 70, you know, 10 years from now on the 40th anniversary. <laughs> it's right. pretty strenuous material, you know. And may, maybe I will. Maybe I'll be in good health, you know. But uh, this might be the last time I get to do this. So uh, I'm really, really enjoying it and trying to savor every moment. Well, that's an interesting and very honest a- answer because obviously – this time stops for no one, and you turned in this remarkable performance thirty years ago. You, do you feel it's a challenge now for you? Uh, oh, every night's a challenge. Yeah, um, when you're a singer, it's especially a challenge. But uh, I'm pretty strong. You know, at sixty years old, I'm I'm still pretty strong. So I'm uh, I'm just crossing my fingers and trying to live right, and hopefully, <laughs> I can stay healthy. You know, because it seems like a lot of musicians are are kicking it in their mid sixties, you know, and, uh, gosh, I just, uh, I want to get past that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the bigger thing is there's a lot of artists who, and there's no shame in it, but I mean, they, they made these incredible records and turned in these incredible vocal performances. And just like an athlete, I mean, they've lost something off their voice. They've lost the ability to hit certain notes. It's a challenge. I mean, there's only a few guys that you don't see any erosion from, but your your thoughts on that? I mean, at this point, at sixty, do you do you pretty much feel that you could sing everything as you once used to sing it, or do you have to tune down a step? Or how how are you how are you feel like you're at now? You still feel you have all of your ability as a singer? Um, yeah, I have a, a a lot of ability still. It's a uh, it's really about presenting the song in the in a in a good way that, uh, you know, gets the idea and the spirit of the song across in a live format. You know, you, you can't do a record or an album just like the record and perform it live. You know, it's just, it's nearly impossible in most people's, you know, music. Um, there's varying variations and things that you do, and, and that's what makes it special. You know, otherwise, why don't you just, you know, get out there and play the song, you know, on the, on the CD live for people, <laughs> you know, it's the live performance is what makes it cool and, and makes it uh, worth going to see, I think. And, um, you know, it's true about a lot of people. And I've noticed it last in the last couple of years, seeing different bands and artists play that, uh, people vary their music, you know, to fit their abilities at, at certain ages. And I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I, I kind of like it, you know, like I remember seeing Sting perform Roxanne, uh, and he, I think the new version he's doing is cooler than the original one, you know? And, uh, and that's, what's kind of fun about, about doing this for so long is that you do get to change your music up and present it in a, a different way. And if you don't, I mean, I, I think people kind of stop coming to see you if you don't make it different each time you go out, you know? And, uh, nowadays, you know, uh, I, I still tour, I still still tour regularly every year I go out and uh, I hope to keep doing that until I'm unable to. (laughs) And I hope I realize I'm unable to before I go out. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. Because there's a difference between changing up things a little bit to better suit your voice at that time. And there's a big difference to just going out there and croaking and embarrassing yourself as unfortunately I've seen some guys do. So that's a, that's a big, big difference in, in, in approach. And I certainly think you're miles away from doing that, but there, 
Yeah, there, there's no shame. There's no shame in an athlete saying I can't throw the ball when I did when I was 20. And I've always said there's no shame in a musician saying I, you know, I can't hit what I hit when I was 20. When I'm 60, it, it's going to happen. To everybody, there's only a few guys that can basically you know, that, that seem to be ageless out there. But from what I've seen, you're pretty much keeping on, keeping on, and pretty darn close to to uh, to delivering that still. And you're getting ready to go out now. The band in in America, you're starting in June that I see doing this album. Uh-huh. Talk about the band that you're going to have with you. What Any musicians that we would know or are you using guys? Did you have some guys from Europe that were joining you? The Not the band, but the country, uh, the the, uh, the territory Europe. Was, was Did you have those guys with you? or no. what, Who do yeah, you have well, in have, the band? Uh, well, I have my longtime uh, partner, uh, Scott Motten, on the guitar, who's uh, been off and on with me various times over the last uh, 18 years. And uh, Kieran Robertson is a young uh, guitar player, singer, uh, multi-instrumentalist, and uh, composer uh, on lead guitar, who's incredible. Um, I'm just so amazed at this guy's talent. And uh, I have another multi-instrumentalist, Bruno Sa from uh, Rio de Janeiro, South America, who joins me on keyboards, guitar. And this guy plays, uh, was it 12 different instruments? I mean, amazingly, <laughs> just amazingly. And he's a good singer, too. Um, I have uh, uh, Jack Ross on bass, who's uh, another young, up-and-coming, uh, great musician, and a, a really phenomenal drummer, uh, Josh Watts, another young guy who's uh, really impressed me with his abilities. Uh, it's a fantastic band, and uh, they've just really thrown themselves into this presentation and uh, they all grew up with the music, you know. So uh, for them, this is like a, a dream come true to to play it live with me. And for me, it's fantastic having this uh, this young, energetic enthusiasm of this, these great guys who uh, who really live and breathe the music. You know, it's inspiring. Last thing, Jeff. You know, I'm thinking about you running down all the guys you played with, you have in your band now since your departure from Queensryche, you've had and played with, in various capacities, a lot of different people, a lot of different yeah. musicians. How, is that something that you, you liked? Has that been a fun part of all this, that, that you've gotten a chance to... I mean, I'm sure there's some guys that just didn't work out or it wasn't vibing like you thought, but overall, you're a guy that's always liked exploring new territories musically and working with you know, different sounds and stuff. Has it been, has it been a, a positive experience to play with all these different people? Oh, yeah, it's been fantastic. Well, you know, I spent 30 years not playing with anybody, but, you know, the same guys. So this is uh, fantastic for me, um, playing with all these fantastic players and meeting um, these different musicians who uh, are, some some of them are just phenomenal. I went down to uh, South America uh, to play a show, uh, a couple shows there, and I uh, put together a, a South American band that was amazing, just amazing. And when I got there, we had a day of rehearsal before the shows and I walked into the rehearsal room and and we played the whole set through. There was not one flaw. And I said, Hey, take the rest of the day off guys. You got this. (laughs) You know, (laughs) we did phenomenal shows that were just amazing. Um, Just last week I was uh, at the Alice Cooper uh, golf uh, tournament uh, in Phoenix. And uh, we had a huge uh, musical jam presentation and uh, I was playing with uh, uh, 
Don Felder and uh, Pat Thrall from Kiss and uh, Adrian uh, Young from No Doubt. And these guys are amazing players. And just having the, the ability and the, um, to be in that same, you know, on the stage with these great players is really an honor. Well, listen, I appreciate you taking a few minutes out today and uh, celebrating 30 years of Operation My Crime. Everybody see Jeff and his band performing this live starting in the U.S. Looks like it kicks off in Finley, Ohio on June 5th. Go to jefftate.com. Uh, my vision's going. It looks like June 8th. jefftate.com has got all the dates wherever you're listening. See if there's a show headed your way. And, Jeff, enjoy the time. Send my best to your wife and your family, and I hope to see you uh, somewhere soon. Okay, Eddie. Thanks for the time, man. I appreciate it. And hopefully see you over the summer. Sounds good, man. Thanks very much. Take care. Bye-bye now. See ya. Bye-bye. Well, thanks to Jeff Tate. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. Hard to believe Operation Mind Crime is 30 years old. That is crazy. And Jeff Tate, like you heard, will be celebrating the anniversary of that record by playing it once again in its entirety with his band. Interesting because Scott Rockenfield has not been performing with Queensryche for the last year or two, meaning that there's only two original members left in Queensryche, and then, of course, their former singer, Jeff Tate, out doing his own thing with his own band. It's uh, crazy times in the music industry. You need a scorecard to keep track of who's doing what with who and who's actually in some of these bands. Thanks to Jeff. Thanks to Jonathan Kane. And I'll see you guys next Thursday for another all-new episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast, which is produced by Katie Irizarry. Have a good one. Remember... Visit me on social media at Eddie Trunk, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook on the fan page there. EddieTrunk.com is the website. And anytime you're shopping on Amazon, do it by going to Amazon.com slash shop slash Eddie Trunk. Start all your shopping there. Have a good week, everybody. See you next Thursday. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.